Hey, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Um, as we do that, kids, I want to say thanks so much for being a part of what we do in the worship service. I'm going to let you go to your classes with your teachers so you can head on out. Um, Colorado, uh, people love to hike, and so I thought, hey, that'd be a great illustration to talk about Jesus' humanity, his condescension. And uh, I, I, I love to hike, but uh, now's not really the hiking season. Uh, right now is more snowshoeing season. And uh, I love snowshoeing, except for this one reason. This is the only thing I have against snowshoeing. My, my wife loves to go snowshoeing, so she's not in here. I can share this, um, that, you know, if we're ever, if we're... <laughs> If, we, if someone else ever takes our kids, that is one of the first things she brings up in this winter is, let's go snowshoeing. But this is the one thing I have against snowshoeing. If you've ever been snowshoeing, this is the only thing. I would do it. I would do it all the time except for one objection. It's harder than hiking, <laughs> trudging through the snow. I, I, feel, I feel like a wimp because, you know, I could go maybe a tenth of what I might do on a hike, a normal hike. And I'm just, I'm gassed. I can't go any further. And so it's the last thing I want to do uh, with my wife um, is to just, you know, look like I'm about to puke my guts out um, on some mountain in the snow as a date, right? That doesn't sound appealing to me. But I, I want you to think about this dynamic, and maybe you have been in this dynamic um, if you've done uh, the Tories Grays hike, we have what is called a saddle. Uh, how many of you know what a saddle is when you're hiking? Okay, great. Good. So when I get this wrong, you'll still understand what I mean. <laughs> a saddle is essentially when you climb up to a point. In particular, you, you might climb up the, the Tory side, that 14er, and then the saddle is that it's not, it's not quite a valley, but it is the dip that you go down, and sometimes that descent is even going, going uh, thousands of feet, a couple thousand feet, even 3,000 feet. It's not that deep with Tories Grays. But you go down before you then go up and you ascend another peak. That's a saddle. You get that picture, kind of like a saddle we sit on with the horse. Well, I want you to imagine that kind of hiking. What I love about a hike that has a saddle in it is you oftentimes get a breathtaking view uh, before you turn around and head back, right? Because you ascend to that first peak and you see something amazing and you see, I'm going to hike over there and you've got a descent, a major descent before an ascent to the next peak. And sometimes you get a, a much better view of it from that first peak before you hike down into the saddle. Well, last week we had, we had the call to humility that we would descend, that we would stoop down, that we would roll up our sleeves to put our brother or sister first, to consider them more important than ourselves. And this week I want us to stand before we take that descent before we lower ourselves and how we think about ourselves, I want us to get a view of this other peak. And this other peak is Jesus' story. Before you and I stoop down into the arduous hike of the saddle, that you and I would take a moment right now to motivate our own hearts and souls by looking at Jesus' humility. Because that's what Paul does right here. As he thinks about the large descent that Jesus took on 
when he came in the form of a baby, what we celebrate as Christians around Christmas, what we remember and think about Jesus' first coming, that we would look at that descent and that we would look at the beauty of it so that we would be motivated. And I'm going to ask you, how did practicing loving, kindness, generosity towards your brothers and sisters, how did that go? That was our big application last week. Let's practice that. It's not do it once and be done with it, but it is a practice of considering our brother or sister more important than ourselves. How did that practice go? Think about that. And if you haven't started, start this week and start with this motivation, this motivation right here, this thinking that we have a new mind. Paul is going to call us to this, to put on your new mind. And so this morning, I want you to put on this way of thinking as we look at Jesus' humility. And this is what I mean by, by put on your new mind. If you ever heard of the fictitious uh, brain transplant, my dad always talked about brain transplants and things like that. And I, I believe they were real. I grew up to a certain point. There has never been a brain transplant, right? No, like that was a big uh, revelation for me of, oh my goodness, I just, I kind of assumed um, because my dad talked and joked about those all the time. But this is, this is a, actually, our new mind is actually a merger of minds. It's not transplanting one mind for another, substituting one mind, but it is literally merging Jesus' mind with ours, is what Paul's going to say right here. And what he means by this in this brain union is that as we are united to Jesus, the kind of thinking that Jesus demonstrated and displayed is not just the model, it's not just the ethical example, but it is now our way of thinking. And this is what I mean by this. You and I might be the most selfish people in this room. And yet if we stand in Jesus by grace through faith, then you and I can say, I'm giving up that way and I am claiming a different way of thinking for myself this morning. It's the same kind of thinking that Jesus had when he came down into our world from heaven to put someone else first. I'm claiming that kind of thinking and that we can have confidence moving from the self-centered narcissistic right to the humble others-centeredness, others-focused. We can put on this new mind. It's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or literally what he's saying is, I want you to think this way, this direction along this path. And this is your path. You can validly walk down this path because it is yours in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense, what he's saying? He's, and and I, I want us to understand this. He's not just saying Jesus is the example of how to think. He is saying, you, Christian, this is your territory that Jesus has given you. It's yours. You need to think and act this way because this is your thinking in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I want to talk about the mind. I want to illustrate it. Uh, Romans 12, Paul tells us that a part of our, our worship our living sacrifice is the renewing of our mind. And I want us to see how the new mind, what Paul brings up here, is connected to our growing in humility, this attitude of Christ-likeness, humility. Um, literally the renewing of our minds. Um, 21st century, with the boom of neuroscience and what we know with technology today, it's amazing. 
that our brains are very plastic. There's a plasticity to our minds. And I don't mean that we are Barbie dolls or whatever. What I, what I mean is that our minds are very moldable. They're not like, they're not like bones, right? Like our, our bones are hard and set. Our, our, our minds can actually be shaped. And, and there's a neuroscientist in particular. He's a Christian. Um, and, and he wrote a great book. I'm not going to mention the name of the book because the last time I mentioned it, uh, someone left our church. They were like, well, I'm done. So you look it up. The guy's name is William Struthers, but, but I didn't mention it. So, okay, you, could be, you can look it up. It's William Struthers. And he, he is a neuroscientist who looks at things from a Christian perspective, from his faith. And he writes this book in order to help Christians who feel that they've hit a roadblock. I can't grow in Christ-likeness anymore. I just, I can't. It's impossible. And what he does is from a neuroscience perspective, he explains how God made our brains and says that not only does the belief that says that I can't grow, I'm always going to give in to this temptation I, I'm never going to be Christ-like in this area. I, I could never, that that's not only false theologically, but he's saying it's also false scientifically. But he explains this and why people feel this way. That our brains are essentially pathways and that when we think or feel, choose or experience something, we are essentially creating a pathway in our brains. You've probably heard of that, pathways in our brains. And the more we walk that, the more like our brains look like a trail, a well-worn trail, right? Um, if people aren't cutting the switchbacks, you know what I mean, right? You hikers out there, when people stay on the trail, Everything around the trail looks rather wild. There might be flowers, there might be weeds, there might be grass, there might be bushes and, and trees, but the path is rather bare and it's pretty solid, right? And that's essentially our, our brain, that we create a pathway. Um, if you and I showed up to a field and, and perhaps someone had walked through this field every day before us for 300 days, on one path, we would see that pathway. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I show up to a place like that, I want to walk on the path. It's easier, right? I just, I gravitate towards that. Dr. Struthers says our brains are the exact same way. So we cannot keep thinking, experiencing, choosing the same things and expect that we're gonna create new pathways in our brain. But literally that God created us spiritually and physically in this way. That as we learn new gospel truths, as we see how the gospel affects a new area of our life, that we would create these new pathways. What Paul's talking about right here is, hey, if your mind is always focused on you, that you can create a new pathway through, through the mind of Christ, he's saying right, right here. Why? Because Jesus is the trailblazer. You and I might have a rut through our brain, and it is the trailhead of self-centeredness, where we are selfish. We only think about ourselves, right? And maybe we are caught walking down that. We could accuse ourselves of that. That literally, we have a new pathway in our brain that Jesus has blazed. That we have no claim to it because I've walked down this path. I, I'm the expert in focusing on others. But that we can think this way because Jesus blazed this trail for us. Does that make sense? 
I'm using neuroscience as the illustration. It's not my, it's not my proof here, just so you know. Um, but that's what Paul means when he says, I want you to think this way. I want you to think in a new way, and this new way is how Jesus thought. And you can think in this new way because he blazed that trail for you. You're empowered to do this. He has every confidence in the Philippian Christians. Why, why is Jesus the trailblazer? Why? Because he endured unthinkable humility. And that's what Paul's going to go into. That is our great peak. That's what you and I get to look in and be amazed at how Jesus would stoop himself. So I want to, let's look at verse 6 which talks about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is, this is kind of hard to translate and understand, and it's led to a few major heresies. But I want to I help us understand this, that, that Scripture is crystal clear, especially when you take into account the immediate context. Let's just bring it up again. Context is king. Right? If you're in a Bible study and, and, uh, and there's a question or maybe two different views, the first place that you and I should turn is the context of what's being said. And here's the big question, this, this phrase, form of God, what does, what does it mean? And some people have argued it means that Jesus wasn't in the form of God. He became in the form of God. And that's not at all what Paul means. Paul uses the past tense here. He says, though he was in the form of God. Some people also argued that Jesus, um, uh, Jesus gave up his godness, his divinity. That's not it at all. Who, though he was in the form of God, highly debatable, is qualified by this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or seized. Here's what this means. The form of God is very plain and clear that Jesus is truly God, that Jesus is equal with the Father and he's equal with the Spirit, that he's of the, here's a real technical word, he's of the same substance as the Spirit and the Father, that he was never created, he's always existed, in fact, he is in nature God. Now, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are three distinct persons, They have always existed. But here's what I want to hone in on, this in particular. This is what it means that Jesus was in the form of God. It means that every divine attribute that the Father and the Spirit have, that the person of the Son, Jesus, has. He has. And here's why I bring that up. In God's omniscience, that he knows everything in his sovereignty, in his splendor, his majesty, glory, and beauty, that Jesus is all of those attributes and characteristics. He's all of those. And yet, and yeah, I want to bring this up because something in our minds today says this is true, and it's not. It's not. That we believe that somehow God could come, or Jesus could come in the flesh because he is somewhat less than God the Father. That he's somehow less God. I think of the word uh, like a demigod, right? Something below, something right below. In fact, there are entire religions and cults that believe that. That believe that. That Jesus is something of a demigod. He's less than God. 
And so in our minds, maybe it's okay that Jesus came in the flesh because he's not, he's not God like God the Father. There's something in our minds that says that's okay. But it is wrong thinking. Jesus is in no way less than God. That is wrong thinking. Jesus is truly God. In all of his attributes, in all of his characteristics, he's equal in divine substance, and he's, I'm going to use this word, he's co-eternal. There's never a time when Jesus has not existed. Jesus was not created. Everything else was created except for the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is a part of that. He is co-eternal. He has always existed. I want to talk about St. Nicholas, but we're, we're, we're not going to have time, right? But there's the great legend of St. Nicholas, the real St. Nicholas, who confronts Arius, who says the words that, that uh, he says, you know, there was a time when the Son of God was not. Essentially, Arius is saying, Jesus was created. He hasn't always existed, right? And there's this legend that St. Nicholas, where, where begins the legend of, of Santa Claus, goes over and slaps him or punches him in the face. And, but essentially, we're talking about, about this idea, which, which goes hand in hand with the incarnation and what we're talking about. Jesus coming into our world. But here's what you and I need to understand. Before we can get to the incarnation, before we can understand Jesus' humanity, we must understand his divinity. Jesus is not the same person. But he is equal. He is just as much God as the Father in the Spirit. And as we begin to think and talk about the incarnation, we want to make him a demigod, and he is not. He is truly God. But this is what Paul brings up right here. And this should begin to amaze us. While Jesus is Equal with the Father in his divinity, he does not use his status as God as the reason why he would not take up the lowly mission of coming into our broken world as a human being. He did not use it as his excuse. These words here, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That he did not hang on to that. that he did not hold that badge or that card out to say, I can't do this. I shouldn't do this. This is outrageous that I would be asked to. I'm God. That he did not give that as his excuse when the Father called him to step into our world. He didn't deny the mission that his father gave him because of the glory that he had as God. But, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. What does it mean emptied right here? I, see, I told you last week, man, we're getting theological this week. I love it. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Because I've already told you, That when Jesus is equal with the Father and the Spirit, that means that he has all of the same divine attributes and characteristics. What does it mean emptied? Again, context. What did he empty himself to? Right here. Taking the form. Same word. He's in the form of God. Taking the form of a servant. 
that, that Jesus, who was God, picked up the form of a servant. What does that mean? It means that while Jesus had the status of everything was created through him, that he was willing to roll up his sleeves, that he was willing to stoop down, that he was willing to come down to the level of a world that had ignored and reject him in order to serve his father's purpose, which was also for the good of his people, of his church. I think uh, I often think about um, this right here, and uh, this, is, this is James Boyce's thought. Why did the angels burst out into song to the shepherds? Why did they do that? And, and Pastor Boyce thinks about, well, angels do not know the mind of God. They don't. They're like you and I. We need things to be revealed to us by God. And that the angels probably wondered, what was Jesus' entering into the world going to look like? Was it going to look like a conquering king? Was it going to, to look like the clouds rolled back and, and Jesus in his glory descending to the earth and, and living in a palace far away from any civilization? What what was it going to look? Was he going to descend like, like a super Aristotle and he would wow everybody with his wisdom and his knowledge? And, and, and no, he, he is born in a remote village, Bethlehem, to a woman that was rather un- unknown, rather common, that he was born of, of low means, and that, that heaven's mind is blown when those angels break out in song at the majesty of, of, of how the Son of God, who is equal in substance with the Father, is born as a human that is relatively ignored by the world. That heaven is amazed. Jesus is truly God, and yet Jesus embraced taking the role of a servant. In other words, the Son of God came into the world revealing who God was in the flesh, and humanity continued to reject him. No red carpet. No one throws a parade. And yet, and yet Jesus dons the clothes, the flesh that you and I wear. What does it mean that Jesus took up the role of a servant? It means that he is taking on humanity, that he is God in the flesh. He's truly God, but he is truly man. That he has taken on a body just like yours and mine. While his conception is unlike ours, unlike ours, his birth is just like yours and mine. And what does that tell us? That not only does Jesus have a body like yours and mine, but he has a human nature. Why must our our Redeemer, why must the Savior be truly human Because in his human nature, he is able to perfectly obey the law on our behalf and suffer punishment for human sin. And he could not do that without his human nature. 
So right here we have the hypostatic union, the God-man, that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Why this is amazing is because he is now the perfect sacrifice. Because if you took any human with a human nature and you offered them as a sacrifice to God for your sin or for mine, it would be an incomplete sacrifice. Number one, because of our sin. But also because it took Jesus' divine nature for him to be the perfect sacrifice. That he would be able to both uh, carry sin that he did not commit himself to satisfy that punishment, and yet apply that satisfaction for all eternity to his church, to everybody who believes in him, that that required both his human nature and his divine nature together. And so right here, what do we see as Jesus takes on humanity? Verse 8, and being found in the likeness of man. And don't get thrown off by this word found. It, It wasn't a mistake. You know, Jesus is not surprised. This is, this is his choice to come into our world, to take on human flesh, to be born just like you and me, but to be found in the likeness of man. So as he is in the flesh, what does Jesus focus on? His mission, that he has come to obey, he has come to suffer, and he has come to suffer in the most humiliating ways, to die on the cross. See, we, we see Jesus' radical humility in this. He takes on humanity, and he takes on the cross in his humanity. The Father called him to it. It was the most humiliating death to be publicly hung on a cross. The Romans loved, they cherished, that they, they would never have to think about being crucified. Because Roman law said, if you are a Roman citizen, then you could have committed the worst crime and we're not going to hang you on a cross. Because it was so humiliating. There was so much shame. It was so gruesome. Even Paul, who's writing this, he's he's endured so much persecution as a Christian and yet he has the comfort of knowing as a Roman citizen, I'm never going to have to experience this according to Roman law. And yet what we find is that Jesus is willing to embrace willingly that suffering on our behalf. Lastly, that Jesus takes it, taking it all willingly, his willingness. Friend, no one forced Jesus' hand The Son of Man has always existed. His mission to take on human flesh, to bear the cross, that was all his choosing. He didn't have to do that, but he did. There's an emphasis right here on that he was willing. This was his volition, that he chose to do this, even though it was low and it was shameful, that he was willing. Paul David Tripp writes this. He says, if Jesus hadn't been willing to make earth his destination, then you and I would have no hope whatsoever of the new heaven and new earth being our final destination. Did you hear that? Jesus stepping down into our world, God being born as a baby, should fill us with hope. 
Because when Jesus makes that choice, we know that he is willing to give us life, that he is willing to stoop down to whatever length, that that was his choice in his humility. Paul is making the connection that Jesus' willing humility allowed him to go the distance in obeying his father, whatever he called him to do. And Paul brings that up because it's the same with us. You and I won't be able to practice loving our brothers and sisters, caring about them, putting them over ourselves. We won't be able to do that without the same kind of humility that Jesus displays right here. But Jesus' humility, it's ours. It's ours. If you're united with Jesus, I want to share with you, maybe, maybe you're still thinking about Jesus this Christmas, whether or not you want to put your faith in him, you want to follow him. And I want to encourage you with this thought that Jesus came into the world not because he had to, but because he was willing to for you. You know, um, when someone does something for you and you find out that they had to, right? You, you understand it was love, but it was a certain level. But when someone does a kindness for you, when they care about you, and they didn't have to, doesn't it mean something? It means something so significant. And so, friend, I want you to consider that Jesus came into this world, not just to warm your hearts, but because he was willing to die for you, that he'd made that decision in his own mind, that that calls you to put your faith in him that he loves you, that he cares for you. And Christian, this is what I want you to think about today. That the willingness we see at Jesus' incarnation, that he would choose to step into our broken world, is unchanged today. The same willingness that Jesus had to step into our world, to pick up his cross, to obey his Father, to bring about redemption and reconciliation, to, to bring about forgiveness to give you a place in heaven, he stepped into our broken world willingly. That same willingness he has for you today. His heart towards you is unchanged. And so if you're feel, fearful this Christmas about what does God think about me or, or I come to what Jesus has done for me and I still feel like a failure, I want you to know that Jesus' heart towards you is unchanged. The same story of his incarnation describes the same heart that Jesus has for you this very day in our history. And that is good, good news to think about. That changes our life. That helps us to believe those powerful, those powerful words of Romans 12, right? To continue renewing our mind. Do not get stuck. Do not disbelieve Jesus' words of hope. His heart is unchanged for you. You are a new creation. You're his workmanship. Believe it. His heart is unchanged. He is continually willing, willing to do what is good for you according to his Father's grace. Okay, so, so there's another verse that I think about that describes what Jesus did. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says this, Though Jesus was rich, Paul says he became poor, on account of you, so that through Jesus' poverty, 
you might become rich. Okay, so Paul uses this illustration of wealth right here, uh, wealth and poverty. He does not mean literally. You know, Jesus said Jesus had money and you didn't. <laughs> you know, so he gave up his money so that you would have money. That's not. He's using an illustration to describe exactly what he says in Philippians two. What did Jesus have? What, what's this richness? He had fellowship with his Father. Direct fellowship with his Father. He had status. The angels brought worship to him. Jesus had glory, honor, recognition, all of which he did give up when he came to earth. How do I know that? Because he was unrecognized, he was veiled in flesh. Had Jesus given up any attributes? No. But the status? Yes. How people treated him? Absolutely. He gave that up. He experienced what? Suffering. He experienced humiliation. He gave all those up so that for us who are poor, what, would, what did we not have? Paul means you didn't have fellowship with God. You were kicked out of the garden. You had no relationship with God. You had no place in heaven. And yet Jesus made that swap, that switch. Though he was rich, he became poor, that on your account, you who are poor would become rich. As you think about how Jesus became poor, he left heaven to come down and seek out his church. I want you to think about this. As you and I continue practicing the good, the loving, the beautiful, the godly for our brothers and sisters, for your family, I want you to think and be inspired and motivated by what Jesus stooped down to do. If he was willing to come down, to stoop down to earth, what are you and I willing to give up to become poor in order to do that good, the beautiful, the loving, that rich thing towards our brother and sister in Christ? What is it for you? Father, I pray that you would help us to consider what is it as we're practicing loving, not just our neighbor, but loving our church family well. God, I pray that you would help us to see how Jesus stooped, how low he stooped, what he gave up and missed out on in heaven as he took on flesh. And God, that you might help us, lead us to walk on Jesus' paths to what your Spirit's calling us to do to put our brother or sister first, to value them above ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us in this practice. I pray that you would help those of us that feel fearful or insecure. We don't even want to start. God, would you help us? God, I pray for those of us who uh, don't practice this because our pride has so consumed us. God, would you, would you help us to be changed literally as we look and meditate on Jesus' humility that you would change us gradually to look like Jesus' humility 
Uh, God, I pray, I pray for folks in here that have been practicing humility, that have been practicing how they can bless and be good and love their brothers and sisters. God, I pray that seeing what Jesus did in his first coming, that that would motivate us to continue on, to not give up, to know that this is good, to become poor in order to be rich toward our brother or sister. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.